This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. June 28, 1971. Crowds had gathered at Columbus Circle to celebrate the second annual Italian-American Unity Day. Red, white, and green, the colors of the Italian flag, dotted all of Midtown Manhattan. However, the key organizer of the celebration, 48-year-old Joe Colombo, noticed that the crowd wasn't as large as last year's event. A year earlier, mob boss Carlo Gambino had given the longshoremen throughout the city the day off so they could attend the rally. But this year was different. Carlo hated publicity and had grown extremely frustrated with Joe's showy approach. Joe, who was a leader in the Brooklyn-based mafia, was drawing too much notice in the public. The attention came with increasing pressure on Carlo from the police, So when Joe insisted on coordinating a second rally for the Italian-American Civil Rights League, Carlo withdrew his support, and the longshoremen under his control were kept at their jobs. But the crime boss wasn't done there. He needed to send Joe a message. Shortly after 11.45 a.m., Joe walked through the crowds, greeting guests. As he was making his way down the line, he was approached by a man wearing the credentials of a press photographer. The photographer brandished a pistol and... Three bullets struck Joe in the head. Blood gushed from his neck and mouth as he hit the ground. Crowds of spectators ran in terror, leaving plastic tatters of red, white, and green in their wake. A band struck up some music in a feeble attempt to calm the crowd. Over the ruckus, someone yelled out, They got Columbo! They got Columbo! Joe survived the shooting but was left paralyzed, effectively ending his career as the head of the Columbo crime family. 
His flashy style no longer posed a problem. Carlo Gambino could once again retreat into the shadows. Welcome to Kingpins, a ParCast original. I'm Kate Leonard. And I'm Howell Hargett. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our second episode on Carlo Gambino, the boss of one of the most recognizable mafia organizations in the country. Last week, we explored his rise from his mob-filled childhood in Sicily to become a world-renowned crime leader in Brooklyn, New York. This week, we'll take a look at the setbacks that ended Carlo's reign over the Gambino crime family. Carlo Gambino started his mafia life as a teenager while still in his homeland, Sicily. His mother introduced him to the underworld, and he thrived in carrying out kill orders. With changes in the Italian government, Carlo turned his sights to the United States and stowed away on a freighter ship. Once in New York, Carlo connected with his mother's side of the family, which was already firmly entrenched in the mob. In the coming decades, Carlo endured a tangled web of mob wars, power grabs, silent betrayals, and incarceration. By 1957, the soft-spoken mobster had ascended to the top of a crime family bearing his own name. Known for his courtly manner, inconspicuous dress, and hawk-like nose, Carlo soon became one of the most powerful mafia bosses in America. The Gambino family's operations included gambling, loan sharking, extortion, hijacking, contract killing, and labor racketeering. Carlo had managed to build an empire while staying outside of the general public's eye. Though he was based in Brooklyn, Carlo's control stretched across the country. Miami, Boston, Chicago, Las Vegas, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. In no time at all, he was named chairman of the Mafia Commission. The brainchild of Lucky Luciano, the Commission was the governing body of all the families in the American Mafia. They came together to handle conflicts, decide who could and who couldn't join, and who deserved to be murdered. And beginning in 1959, Carlo was running the show. Carlo was popular among the Commission, and he was also popular in the streets of Little Italy, 
bringing his almost permanent enigmatic grin with him. The mob boss was known for holding court in the Manhattan neighborhood, greeting people and bestowing favors as he saw fit. While most other mob bosses barricaded themselves in their mansions, protected by armed bodyguards and fences, Carlo walked the streets with impunity. He could be seen stopping to talk with old friends while he bought vegetables and fruits from street vendors and Italian meats and cheeses from his favorite shops. By the early 1960s, Carlo held tremendous influence over labor unions, including the International Longshoremen Union. The ILU accounted for more than 90% of all New York City's dock employees. By controlling the city's ports, Carlo ruled over the main entry point for imports into the United States. In 1962, the 60-year-old Carlo married off his eldest son, Thomas, to Francis Lucchese, the daughter of Tommy Three-Finger Brown Lucchese, who headed his own crime family. Tommy and Carlo had become partners and friends, and uniting their biological families connected their crime families, too. More than 1,000 people attended the wedding ceremony. It's rumored that Carlo gave Tommy a welcome gift of $30,000. To repay his gift, Tommy cut Carlo into his airport rackets. Don Carlo could now expand his operations at New York International Airport, now JFK, where Tommy held the reins over all the unions, management, and security. Their alliance strengthened Carlo's already high power position. The business-savvy Carlo knew that his illegal income would draw the attention of the government. So, he also laundered millions of dollars through legal businesses like pizza parlors, furniture retail, olive and cheese importers, supermarkets, bakeries, and restaurants. But even his best efforts couldn't stop the government from prying into his affairs. For years, the FBI had buried its head in the sand about the existence of organized crime in the United States. Most government officials refused to believe there was a mafia presence in the country at all. However, after the arrests of over 60 mobsters at the 1957 Appalachian meeting, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI couldn't ignore the threat the mafia posed to national security. Despite uncovering who Carlo was and what he did for a living, getting to him was proving impossible. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy began to ramp up the Justice Department's efforts to bring down organized crime, but he was getting little traction. One of the biggest obstacles they faced, no one was willing to talk. One of the key principles in the mafia was silence, omerta. For decades, the code of silence was kept tightly. But that all changed in September 1963, when Joseph Valachi became the first mafia informant. Valachi was a member of the Genovese crime family, facing the death penalty for a murder he committed while in prison for a narcotics violation. Hoping to plead his way out of a death sentence, Valachi agreed to talk. Robert F. Kennedy had finally found his way in. In exchange for life in prison, Joseph agreed to give up everything he knew about the Mafia's activities. In front of Congress and the entire country, Valachi broke Omerta, 
and divulged some of the most intimate secrets of the Mafia world. Among the details he testified to was Carlo Gambino's involvement in stealing ration stamps during World War II. That racket alone had yielded Carlo over a million dollars, over $17 million today. But despite Bellacci's damning testimony, the government wasn't able to get anything to stick against Carlo. All the publicity only forced him to become more secretive which also meant passing up a great business opportunity. Drugs had become a major cash grab for the mafia. Carlo knew that heroin and cocaine sales were highly lucrative, but he also saw how severe the penalties were for selling narcotics. In the wake of Valachi, Carlo knew any of his family members might flip if they were arrested on a drug charge. He doubled down on the Gambino family policy deal, and die. Anyone caught selling drugs faced the ultimate punishment. No exceptions. Carlo ruled his mob with an iron fist, and as their ranks grew, he needed to keep the reins tight. The Gambino family had grown to somewhere between 500 and 1,000 members, and with all that manpower, they were raking in somewhere around $500 million a year. But while Carlo and his family reaped the rewards, there were other members in the commission who saw his ever-growing power as a threat. Joseph Joe Bananas Bonanno, head of the Bonanno crime family, was one of them. Bonanno was one of the original members of the commission. But over the years, he'd grown weary with Carlo's meteoric rise. Feeling threatened, Bonanno decided to turn to the go-to mafia approach to deal with his Carlo problem, assassination. In 1963, Bonanno hatched a plan to murder Carlo, and for good measure, his good friend, Tommy Lucchese, too. He was able to convince another boss, Joseph Maliocco, to go along with the plot. The two of them enlisted Joe Colombo, a captain in the Profaci crime family, to carry out the hits. But Colombo quickly realized the plot would be more trouble than it was worth. Instead of getting dragged into the harebrained assassination, Colombo ran right to Carlo and warned him what was going on. The would-be killers were called before the commission to face judgment. The commission realized that Maliocco was only following Bonanno's lead, so he was let off with a $50,000 fine but he was also forced to retire as the head of his crime family. One month later, Maliocco died from complications due to his high blood pressure. Carlo named Joe Colombo as Maliocco's successor, a reward for his loyalty. However, things were a little more complicated with pushing Bonanno out. After the plot was uncovered, Bonanno went into hiding. When he resurfaced, he refused to give up his position as boss. The commission decided they were going to have to take action. Initially, Carlo gave the kill order, but he took pity on Bonanno, an old friend who had few allies left. Carlo decided to give him one last chance to retire alive. But Bonanno didn't comply. In fact, even after the order came down, he kept trying to expand his racket into other cities. A representative of the commission said Bonanno 
took up too much space in the air, a Sicilian proverb that spoke to Bonanno's arrogance. To straighten that out, in October 1964, the commission sent a pair of Buffalo gangsters to kidnap him. Bonanno was held captive in upstate New York, and he wasn't released until Carlo was sure he'd learned his lesson and would finally retire in peace. But they may have been a little too trusting. As soon as Bonanno was released, he sent out a message to his enemies that for every one of his men that were killed by the commission's families, he would retaliate by hitting one of their leaders. This forced Carlo and the commission to re-up their demand that Bonanno retire, either dead or alive. Bonanno's remaining few beleaguered followers were inspired by his stubborn defiance. But that sense of pride was suddenly dashed when Bonanno suffered a heart attack. The health setback forced him to take the offer to retire. He moved to Tucson, Arizona, leaving his broken crime family behind. Carlo stood victorious and gained even more respect from the commission. His handling of the Bonanno situation gave him the reputation of being merciful. But the federal government looked at him differently. They saw Carlo as a threat to national security. And it was time to finally put that threat down. Coming up, Carlo faces local and federal agents. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Known for being well-mannered and charitable, Carlo Gambino showed mercy to his longtime ally, Joseph Bonanno, even after he tried to assassinate him. But his acts of benevolence didn't earn him any points from the police. In September 1966, the 64-year-old Carlo was meeting with top mafia leaders from New York and New Orleans at the La Stella restaurant in Queens. For more than a year, Carlo's friend Tommy Lucchese had been hospitalized with poor health, and it was time to discuss the distribution of his operations. As the mob bosses ate and talked, the police raided the restaurant and broke up the meeting. No one was arrested this time, but the pressure was on. The next year, the government tried a different tactic to get Carlo off the streets. Carlo had entered the United States illegally, and in the decades since, he had never become a citizen. The feds issued a deportation order, but it wasn't implemented. It's believed that Carlo bribed two U.S. senators to keep his problem at bay. Even with immigration services knocking at his door, Carlo kept traveling around the U.S., hobnobbing it with all the big celebrities. On August 2, 1967, he was seen at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, 
From the VIP lounge, he watched a performance by Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop, the singer-celebrities known as the Rat Pack. Carlo allegedly gave each of the performers a $10,000 tip. He and his cousin, Paul Castellano, even snapped a picture with Sinatra. But 1967 wasn't all celebration. That same summer, Carlo's friend and partner, Tommy Lucchese, finally lost his battle with a brain tumor. He died at home in Long Island. Carlo arranged the funeral, which was attended by over a thousand mourners, including politicians, judges, police officers, mobsters, and hitmen. With original commission members Tommy Lucchese and Joe Bonanno both gone, Carlo was fully propelled to the title of Capo de Tutti Capi, or Boss of All Bosses. Though the title had been scrapped years before, Carlo's ascent resurrected the name and status. There was no higher honor than this. But the title didn't come without its share of consequences, the biggest, of course, being a larger target on his back. For the federal government, nailing down the boss of all bosses would be a career-defining success. For decades, the FBI tried everything they could to get Carlo, all to no avail. But in March 1970, their efforts started to pay off. The 68-year-old Carlo was strolling down a Brooklyn street when he was suddenly surrounded by FBI agents and NYPD. He was arrested and charged with masterminding a scheme to steal several million in cash from an armored truck company in the Bronx. Carlo was indicted for the crime, but due to lack of evidence, the feds were forced to drop the case. The FBI regrouped, and later that year, they arrested Carlo again, this time for masterminding a burglary ring. As had become custom, when the agents showed up at his home, Carlo treated them as his guests, offering them coffee and dessert. He figured it would all work out, and he was right. Once again, the evidence was slim, and Carlo managed to walk free. What helped Carlo dodge the law was his management style. He emphasized control and discretion, mainly to avoid garnering the attention of the government. Even though the FBI knew about Carlo's work, they were always a hair's breadth away from finding enough evidence for a conviction. But not everyone in the Mafia took the same careful approach, and the results proved violent. By 1970, Joe Colombo had been running his family for roughly eight years, ever since he'd helped uncover Bonanno's assassination plot. And in that time, Colombo had managed to bring peace and stability to his Brooklyn-based family. But where Carlo preferred a low-key approach, Colombo felt very differently. He became well-known outside of the mob world, especially for his work in promoting civil rights for Italian-Americans. In the spring of 1970, Colombo came to believe his son was being harassed by the FBI after the younger Colombo was arrested on conspiracy charges. Colombo's response was to picket outside the FBI's Manhattan office. He very vocally criticized the media and the Bureau, railing against what he called a conspiracy against Italian people. 
Carlo didn't like this. When Colombo started planning his second annual Italian-American unity rally in 1971, the boss of all bosses advised him to stop drawing so much attention to himself. Colombo allegedly responded by spitting in his face. But Carlo had the final word in the matter. He silenced Colombo with three bullets during the very unity rally he'd arranged. Colombo survived the assassination attempt, but he was effectively out of commission. Speculation runs high as to how involved Carlo was in the hit. Other theories pin rival gangster Crazy Joe Gallo as the mastermind. Regardless of who really was behind the shooting, Joe Colombo was no longer a problem for Carlo. But the federal government was. On Monday, November 1st, 1971, Immigration and Naturalization Service agents served Carlo with a notification that he was being deported. The U.S. Supreme Court had finally upheld the order from several years earlier. INS had actually tried to deport Carlo multiple times before this, but their plans always fell through, either because of Carlo's political influence or because of conveniently timed health issues that landed him in the hospital. On top of that, Italy was reluctant to cooperate. They didn't want the notorious criminal in their country any more than the U.S. did. But when the Italian government finally agreed to a travel authorization, the boss of all bosses was served his notice. He would be sent back to Italy on Friday, November 5th. On the same day the news was delivered, Carlo's attorney asked for a stay of the deportation order, once again contending that Carlo was too sickly to travel. Likely story, they thought. Two days later, Carlo's lawyer tried again, claiming he'd received a call from Carlo's family that his client was in a bad way. Carlo had been rushed to Victory Memorial Hospital in Brooklyn and was on oxygen. The wily Carlo had conveniently suffered a heart attack. INS was incensed. They insisted that the U.S. Public Health Service give him a complete physical exam of their own. The government was shocked when a cardiologist confirmed that Carlo's heart incident was genuine. They determined that Carlo actually was unfit to travel, as his lawyer and doctor had asserted. Once again, Carlo Gambino was allowed to remain in the country. And just in time to see his life story make its way to the silver screen. On March 24, 1972, Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather premiered and became an immediate classic. Based on the best-selling book by Mario Puzo, The Godfather told the story of a mafia boss's son who is suddenly thrown into the crime world he once swore off. The titular godfather, Don Vito Corleone, was inspired by several different real mob bosses, and Carlo Gambino was among them. Like Carlo, Corleone was from Sicily and immigrated to the United States alone as a young man. Corleone was also notable for being quiet, taking a non-flashy approach, and emphasizing respect. Few works have influenced pop culture's perception of the Mafia more than The Godfather. 
And Carlo's early history, known only to those closest to him, was now suddenly at the center of a cultural phenomenon. But as the movie made waves around the world, Carlo's health continued to fluctuate. In the spring of 1972, he was rushed to Columbus Hospital in Manhattan after another massive heart attack. During his recovery, Carlo was approached by acting Genovese family boss Tommy Ryan Eboli with a supposedly can't-miss opportunity. According to Tommy, they were about to come into a windfall of cash. But to take up Tommy's proposal, Carlo would have to rethink one of his firmest rules. Coming up, Carlo has to choose between playing it safe and making millions. Now, back to the story. By the early 1970s, Carlo Gambino was at the height of his career. He was considered to have more control of New York City than the mayor himself. Cool and calculating, Carlo always seemed to stay ahead of his enemies, both in law enforcement and in the underworld. But as he was recovering from a heart attack, his commitment to that careful control was tested. A budding opportunity forced him to reconsider one of his central career-long policies. When Carlo took the reins of his family, he warned his members against selling drugs. It brought too much attention from law enforcement. So when acting Genovese crime boss Tommy Ryan approached Carlo to broker a multi-million dollar drug deal, it seemed like an absurd ask. Did he really think that he could convince the boss of all bosses to change his mind about selling drugs? Tommy needed $4 million to take part in a deal with one of the biggest narcotics dealers in the U.S., Louis Cavillo. Tommy didn't have that amount of cash, but Carlo Gambino did. We don't exactly know what Tommy said. Perhaps he took advantage of Carlo's old age or his recent heart attack. But whatever he did seemed to work. Carlo agreed to front him the money. Tommy promised a sure return on Carlo's investment. But before the profits could come through, the government arrested narcotics dealer Louis Sevillo. In the process, they confiscated the drugs and the money. Carlo's cash was now in government custody. When Carlo approached Tommy about his missing $4 million, the story goes Tommy's response was to literally turn his pockets inside out, indicating he was completely broke. This answer didn't satisfy Carlo. On July 16, 1972, at approximately 1 o'clock in the morning, Tommy Ryan was leaving his girlfriend's apartment in Brooklyn when gunfire rang out. Tommy died on the spot. No one was ever arrested for his murder. Even with his fragile health, Carlo's firm hand didn't waver. But in the mafia world, when a door to one problem closes, another one inevitably opens. In December 1972, a van started parking on Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn, just outside Carlo's residence. The surveillance van was a combined effort of the FBI and the NYPD's Organized Crime Control Bureau. 
The mob squad had found a way to plant cameras, microphones, and wiretaps inside Carlo's home. Their 24-hour surveillance recorded just about every corner of his house. But even still, the feds couldn't get anything useful. That's because Carlo used a combination of silent gestures and coded language when discussing his affairs. On one occasion, they recorded an entire meeting where the only thing said was frog legs. The rest of the tape was empty. Clearly, the surveillance van didn't make it past the boss of all bosses. To thwart the feds even further, he decided it was time to do a little restructuring. He named Aniello Neil Della Croce and his cousin and brother-in-law, Paul Castellano, as dual underbosses. Della Croce would handle the dirty work, while Castellano would oversee white-collar crimes. Though Carlo maintained a strong hand over the whole operation, the move created more distance between him and his family's crimes. In early 1973, Carlo learned that his 29-year-old nephew Manny had been kidnapped. James McBratney, the leader of the kidnapping crew, had fallen into debt with the Gambino family. Having successfully kidnapped and ransomed a mafia captain a year before, McBratney thought he could use the same tactic again. McBratney demanded $350,000 from Carlo. If he didn't pay up, they would kill his nephew. Carlo claimed he could only come up with $40,000, but McBratney and his crew weren't willing to negotiate. Soon after Carlo's counteroffer, Manny's empty car was found at the Newark airport. Later, his dead body was found posed and buried in a sitting position in a dump in New Jersey. Between the death of his nephew and his poor health, Carlo was starting to lose his grip. He became a recluse, uncharacteristically boarding himself up in his Brooklyn house. He couldn't let his nephew's death go unpunished. Carlo enlisted his underboss, Neil Della Croce, and rising mobster John Gotti to deal out justice. On May 22, 1973, Gotti and a few other Gambino men shot and killed McBratney while he was drinking at a Staten Island bar. Justice for Manny Gambino's death was finally served. As the 70s rolled on, Carlo's health continued to deteriorate. While his primary residence was a modest house in Brooklyn, he also kept a home in Massapequa on Long Island. He began spending more time there as his health declined. The two-story brick house, surrounded by a low fence and marble statues on the front lawn, sat at the end of a cul-de-sac overlooking the Great South Bay. His bodyguard lived in the house next door. Carlo didn't seem to make his Long Island neighbors nervous. Actually, some said having the mafioso in the neighborhood made them feel safer. Not only did they have mobsters keeping the area secure, but they also had the constant surveillance of police and federal agents keeping an eye on Carlo. By 1975, the 73-year-old Carlo knew he wasn't long for this world. It was time to name his successor. Paul Castellano was not only one of Carlo's primary underbosses, but he was also his brother-in-law and cousin. 
Castellano was the one who picked Carlo up from the dock when he landed in America decades before. As underboss, Castellano handled the family's white-collar crimes, like union racketeering, solid and toxic waste disposal, and wire fraud. The other option was Neil Della Croce, the co-underboss. Neil held the reins over the more hands-on activities, like contract killing, loan sharking, gambling, extortion, hijacking, and robbery. This power structure proved effective and confusing for the FBI. They couldn't be sure who was the official next in command, but Neil was generally considered the expected heir apparent. Carlo thought differently. He ultimately selected Paul instead. The surprising choice spoke to his desire to keep the power in his own family blood. The following year, the succession plan took effect. Carlo Gambino spent the evening of Thursday, October 14, 1976, watching the New York Yankees game at his waterfront house in Massapequa. By the time the game ended, the Yankees had squeaked out a victory over the Kansas City Royals. They were now on their way to the World Series. But Carlo wouldn't be there to watch them get swept by the Cincinnati Reds. The next day, the boss of all bosses took his last breath. At age 74, the lifelong mobster died of natural causes at his home. This was remarkable, given that most of his peers ended their reign in exile, in prison, or in bloody executions. When the feds learned about Carlo's death, one prosecutor joked that his tombstone should read, See? I told you I was sick. Carlo's funeral mass was an extremely elaborate affair. The ticket-only funeral was held at the Church of Our Lady of Grace in a quiet residential area of Brooklyn. Sources say that the funeral was attended by at least 2,000 people, including politicians and judges. Plainclothes police officers and FBI agents were dotted in the crowd outside the church. It's not that they were necessarily expecting trouble, given the Mafia's history of respecting funerals. Rather, the FBI wanted to find out who was going to succeed Carlo as head of the Gambino family. At the time of the funeral, the feds had no clue who was going to take over. This was their best chance to get a glimpse inside. The hundred-car motorcade led from the church to the family's private room at St. John's Cemetery in Queens. Carlo's $7,000 bronze coffin was interred next to his wife, Catherine. But the Gambino family story didn't end when Carlo was placed in the ground. As the new boss, Paul Castellano was a more corporate-style leader. He continued to spearhead the crime syndicate's more white-collar activities like embezzlement and construction schemes. But his leadership approach put the mob on shaky ground. Neil Della Croce stayed on as Paul's underboss. Before his death, Carlo gave Neil the reins of all the Manhattan rackets under his control. But despite the gift, Neil was thoroughly unhappy. He felt he should have been named boss instead of Paul. Neil's loyalists towed the line, but only for so long. 
1985, Paul Castellano was assassinated by Neil's protege and one of Castellano's biggest critics, John Gotti. With Gotti now at the head of the Gambino family, all eyes were on the once secretive organization. Even 40 years after his death, the underworld syndicate Carlo built up continues to bear his name. Carlo's conservative approach contributed to the family's financial success as well as his personal longevity. Carlo spent over 50 years embedded in the mob world. Through his fair and just rule, he became a legend. So much so that he earned a title reserved for only a select few. Capo di tutti capi, boss of all bosses. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week for a new episode. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Juan Borda. This episode of Kingpins was written by Chandra Thomas, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.